Welcome, y'all. Uh, welcome to RUF. My name, I didn't say it earlier, uh, my name is Elliot Everett. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, so especially if this is your first time tonight, we definitely uh, welcome you. What we do on Thursday nights, uh, you've seen half of it. The other half of it is we like to open the Bible together. Uh, we've been in the Gospel of Luke uh, together, looking at the life of Jesus and what Luke wants to tell us or is trying to tell us uh, in the way that he records um, the life and ministry, public ministry of Jesus. And tonight we're in Luke chapter 19, and you can uh, read there along in your handout, or you can uh, open your own Bibles with me. February 7th, 1964, uh, changed the course of popular culture as we know it. It was a uh, very seminal day in our country's history and pop culture history of America. Uh, the effects of it still linger today. It is the day known as the British Invasion, right? Uh, because uh, on that day, the Beatles landed at JFK in New York City to 3,000 people. 3,000 people. Two days later, they were watched on TV on the Ed Sullivan Show by some 74 million people across this country. You see, when the Beatles landed, when the British invaded, as it were, uh, as it is now referred to, the British invasion, they took over, right? They took over the hearts of teenage girls, the hairstyles of teenage boys. They changed the scene of music. They even had quite an injection into politics uh, during their time as well. Because in a sense, you could look at the history of pop culture in our country, and you could look at the Beatles, and you could say when the Beatles landed, it changed everything. Um, there's a sense in which you can look at the history of pop culture in that way. Tonight, we arrive at the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, it's interesting to note that if you take the sum total of all four Gospels, all four Gospels, all the content combined, over one-third of all that content is devoted to the last seven days of Jesus' life. That's rather remarkable. We're going to spend three weeks on it, including tonight. We'll, next week, we'll look at his crucifixion, uh, and then we'll end the semester with his resurrection. But what Luke wants to tell us tonight, what the three, what in, in your English Bibles, at least maybe, uh, when you get to this portion in three of the Gospels, it's referred to as the triumphal entry. Why was it a triumphal entry? Because what Luke wants to tell us tonight is that Jesus really was the king. And we've seen this, right? We've seen this throughout the gospel. But at the triumphal entry, a week before his death, when Jesus mounts the colt of a donkey, a foal of a donkey, and rides into Jerusalem, all the people look at him and say, there he is. There's the king. And what Luke wants to tell us about this king is that when this king comes in, he changes everything. He changes everything. So let's read this together, starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, and he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already the way down on the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. So Luke wants to ask us tonight, or wants to tell us tonight, that when the king rides in, it changes everything. And there's two aspects of this I want to look at, this, uh, this chunk of the passage that we looked at. The triumph of this king and the tragedy of this king the triumph and the tragedy okay so the first one is the triumph and as i said uh for whatever reason most english bibles have a heading here before verse 28 that calls it the triumphal entry and indeed it is triumphal um if that's a word it doesn't sound like a word to me but so they say it is but uh this is passover week in jerusalem there would have been people from all over the place jews from all over the place coming back to Jerusalem to offer sacrifice at the temple uh, to make their yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So there are tons of people as Jesus now takes this last stretch of road into Jerusalem. And as this event takes shape, His disciples and all these people following along the road, they clearly understand the significance of what's happening. Jesus is finally taking the gloves off. He's finally letting it out. He's finally letting everyone say what has been true all along. And they say it there in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? It's triumphal. And Jesus is saying it's triumphal. He's saying, yes, indeed, I am the king. Right? There's three ways, I think, that I just want to think about this for a second. Three ways that this is triumphal. Three ways that when the king rides in, when this king rides in, that it's triumphal, okay? And the first one is really the main one. And it overrides the whole passage. And if you read the rest of, uh, if you read any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' last week of his life, uh, you'll see this theme emerge. That the main way that it's triumphal is because Jesus is in complete control. 
That is what this story screams at us from the beginning, right? He tells his disciples to go find a cult. We don't know how or why he knew the cult would be there. We don't know if he made a prior arrangement. He might have. Uh, but it unfolds exactly as he tells them to, right? And then he's riding this thing into Jerusalem, and he knows that they're going to hail him as king. This whole story kind of screams at us. Jesus is in complete control. In other words, Jesus is kingly. He's acting like a king, right? And if you actually, we've mentioned this a few weeks in a row, because back in Luke chapter 9, if you remember, Luke chapter 9, we looked at the transfiguration, and then uh, I told you that the end of that chapter, uh, it's not even the halfway point as far as content in the gospel of Luke, but at the end of that chapter, what Luke told us was that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Meaning that everything after Luke chapter 9 was with Jerusalem in sight. Meaning his last visit to Jerusalem in sight. So from Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been marching to Jerusalem. But not only has he been marching to Jerusalem, he's been marching to the cross. And he knows it. And he is in complete control. You remember back in some of the earlier parts of the Gospels, right? There's some people that he heals or sometimes there's even demons that cry out, Oh, Son of God, and he tells them to be quiet, right? And he's kind of puzzling, like, why would Jesus tell people not to reveal who he is? And this is precisely why, because he knows that when the veil is fully lifted, when he finally affirms what everybody has been feeling about him, that he truly is the king, he knew that it would lead to the end of his life. And what we know now, and as we we on the other side of the cross looking back, is that Jesus was in complete control. Because he's ready to let the veil off. And he's ready to let everybody know exactly who he is. And he's ready to face the consequences that he knew he would face when he let that out. He's in complete control. Now I want you to think about this. If you were reading this gospel for the first time. Remember Luke is writing... And he's writing for the express purpose that we could be more sure of the things that we've heard about this Jesus. What would a picture of this guy that you had heard about, that he had had all these followers, that he had done some miraculous things, that he had said some pretty awesome things, and then he died. What would this picture of him now being in complete control, what would that tell you? I think at the least it tells you this. Jesus knew Exactly what he was getting into. And I think we really need to hear that. And in fact, his disciples needed to hear that, right? Because we've already seen three different times in this gospel. Jesus has pulled the twelve aside and he's told them what? I must go to Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. And the leaders will flog me and persecute me and kill me. He's told them that three times. And three times they kind of gone like, okay, whatever. And they've moved on. And now here he is, fully facing that, knowing what he's marching into. And even his disciples are still a little clueless. And so even them going back to all the things that happened before, later on after his death and after his resurrection, they realized Jesus was in complete control. Jesus knew what he was getting into. And he faced it like a king. Think about this. How would this affect us if we believed this? Because you've got to understand that when Jesus calls you, when Jesus pursues you, when this king comes into your life, I think we need to hear this. He knows what he's getting into. He knows. 
Some of you need to hear that from the, from the side of it that you just you, you worry sometimes. Can Jesus really handle some of the places that I've been? Whether it's been risque or rebellious or whether it's just been dark and sad and angry. Can Jesus really handle that? And what Jesus, this king would tell you is that he knows what he's getting into. He doesn't just call people and just like hope that they follow along. No. He knows exactly what he's entering. And he faces it like a king. And he faces it like a king that's in control. There's no chaos to this king. This king, chaos doesn't make sense to him because he's in control. There's no surprises to this king. There's no oopsies. Jesus doesn't go, oopsie, where did that come from? No. He's the king. He knows what he's getting into and he's in complete control. And the crowd immediately recognizes the significance of this kingly entry. Okay? Everything that they'd hoped and longed for, they think Jesus is now bringing. But the interesting part of it is, is by the end of this week, what will the same crowds be doing? In unison, calling for him to be crucified. Not knowing exactly what they're asking for. And so the question for us here. When we deal with this king and his control and him knowing what he's facing. Sometimes we got to ask ourselves, are we just along for the ride in hopes that Jesus will kind of come up, saddle up beside us and kind of help us find and meet our desires and our needs? Or is this a king we bow down to solely? Because he's the king and solely because he's in control and solely because he knows what is best for me and I do not. This king was in complete control. I think that's the main theme throughout all this. And so it's going to kind of carry over for the rest of it because it's triumphal because he's in in control, exacting kingly. But he's also triumphal because it was foretold, right? Uh, The gospels record that record this uh, make the finding of this cult very clear that it happens just as Jesus lays it out. And Matthew actually tells us this is an explicit fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, a prophetic book in the Old Testament, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble. And mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why do I draw this out? Because, and we've talked about this before this semester, over and over and over again, you read in any of the Gospels, in any of Jesus' life, in any of His public ministry, what we see is Jesus' repeated and relentless effort to fulfill the Scriptures. And so you tie that in. If this Jesus is king and he knows he's in king and this Jesus is in complete control and he knows he's in complete control, how could he know he was in such complete control? Your, your immediate answer is like, well, because he was the son of God. He just knew it. I don't think you can make that case when you read the Gospels because what the Gospels tell us over and over again is that Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew he was in control. Why? Because he had the word of his father. And over and over and over again, whether he's facing hard circumstances or joyful ones, he processes it through the lens of the word of his father found in the scriptures. That word, whenever you see that word in the Bible, that literally means the written words. 
the written words. Jesus had total trust and reliance and dependence on the written word of the Old Testament. That is why he's so in control. That is why he is the king. And that is why he knows it. The temptation, how did he answer the temptations? It is written. We'll see him carrying his cross next week. And guess what he's doing? Citing scripture out loud. We'll see him hung on a cross with his disciples weeping below him. And you know what he does? He cites to them scripture over and over again. All that happens during this week is triumphal because Jesus knows that what he faces is according to the word of his father. And as dark as the shadow is that looms over his life in these last days, he knows that he's in complete control because he has the word of his father. And we have to see the implication here because the implication here is that Jesus could not live without it. And the implication for us is that we cannot have this Jesus without it either. That's the thing. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I have no creed but Christ, right? Doesn't really make sense because Jesus himself clings to the word of his father. And we cannot cling to this Jesus without that exact same word, right? And if you're honest, this is the thing. Many of you, your biggest hang up with Christianity is precisely this. And I would at least offer to you too that you get it. That you can't have this Jesus without the word as well. You can't. Because it's what his life was about. Um, I know this is enemy territory to be mentioning this. But there was that 30 for 30, the book of Manning. um, Or maybe it was a SEC channel thing. But anyway, it was a great documentary about Archie Manning and his career. But really about his being a father. Uh, to three boys and two of them Super Bowl winning quarterbacks, right? Um, and my favorite part of that documentary is Peyton. Uh, he's the favorite Manning, right? Uh, Peyton is the favorite Manning. Everybody loves Peyton. But Peyton recalls how he could, he could tell you the starting 11 on his dad's college football team. Why? He wasn't alive then. Because he would listen to the game tapes on cassette tape. He would listen to the whole game over and over and over again. So it's to the point now in his life that you could just ask him to name the starting 11 that his dad played with at Ole Miss. And he could tell you off the top of his head why. Because he wanted to hear about his father. Because he loved his dad. You see that same thing with Jesus. Jesus marches through the hell of this life that he lived. Because he has the word of his father. And he faces each and every circumstance. The high ones and the low ones. With the word of his father. And the implication is. We cannot have any part in this king. Or his kingdom. Without the word of his father. He's in control. He's in control just as it was foretold. And just as it was foretold, he knew what it was foretold that he was bringing. He was bringing peace. He was bringing peace. Verse 30 there, Jesus makes the point to tell these disciples, right, that no one's ever ridden on this colt. What would that be telling us? Well, a colt that would never have been ridden on would have been young, not 
full-grown or, or near-full-grown. And so what Jesus is doing, this, this wasn't an uncommon picture. He's preempting this crowd's expectations. In other words, the crowd probably would have been a little bit more elated if he had rode in on a war horse. But Jesus said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to come in on a symbol of peace. And so he chooses this cult just as the Old Testament foretold, right? What is that pointing to? He's pointing to this fact, even though they completely don't get it. And by the time they get it, it makes them want to kill him. He's saying, I come to make peace, not war. I come to save, not condemn. I come to reconcile, not divide. I come suffering, I come serving, I come humble, and I come weak. And that is how I am the king. That is the kind of kingdom that I'm bringing. And this is the thing. This is another thing that he's pointed us to over and over again through his miracles, through his teaching, through all of it. The number one thing that this king brings is peace with God. In other words, he doesn't come in to throw off their oppressors. He doesn't come off to throw off their economic circumstances. He doesn't come off to throw off the physical circumstances that are ailing them in life. He comes to bring peace with God because that's what they needed. Over and over again we've seen this. That Jesus ultimately is trying to give us a foretaste of the complete healing of the entire world that he will bring in his kingdom. Verse 40 alludes to this. I love verse 40. I wish we had more time to spend on it. But he says, if these people weren't crying out, the rocks on the side of the road would do it for them. What could he be talking about? I think he's talking about what we read about in Isaiah chapter 11 when we read that when this king comes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what Jesus is bringing for all of life. So much so that he says that even the inanimate rocks would cry out in joy if these people were not. This king ultimately is about peace and rest. What if your biggest problem with Jesus has been or your biggest doubt or your biggest lack of assurance is that in following him, what you've actually really never found is what he actually said he really is bringing. Peace and rest. There's an implication here that if peace and rest is not what you found in this Jesus, then you haven't found this Jesus. He's the one that says, come, on, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. This is the kind of things that Jesus promises to bring into our life. And so it's worth asking yourself, what are the kings of your life giving you? Because I can promise you they're not giving you peace and rest. If your king is approval, you will never get peace and rest. Because there is never an hour, there's never a minute where you can fully understand and believe that you have complete approval from others. 
There's always something. There's always something lingering, right? And peace and rest are elusive to you. Is it success? Is it how successful you're going to be in life? There is always another rung to the ladder. And you can keep climbing until you just fall off from exhaustion. Or you can believe a lie that you've made it, but you haven't. Because there's always somebody better than you. That's the truth. And that's the fear that you live in. Is it intimacy? Is that your king? And you wonder why you walk about in shame and guilt in your relationships. Because you haven't found the peace and rest that you were really longing for. This king is about peace and rest. And that is the triumph that he wants to bring into our lives. Now we're going to get more into this this week. So this one's going to be short and and to the point hopefully. This is a triumphal day, yes. But there's also tragedy. The tragedy looms all too real, right? As we see Jesus' tears as he goes into, into Jerusalem. It's an interesting part here that Luke uh, records um, in verses 41 and following that none of the other gospel writers include. That as he drew near to Jerusalem, he begins to weep. And he says this, would that you, he's talking to the whole city. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, Jesus comes riding in on the symbol of peace, but he rightly perceives that crowds do not fully understand who he is and what he's bringing. And so he weeps. He weeps for the city of God, Mount Zion, that, that he knows is going to reject them. That he knows is going to invite destruction on itself for what they do to him. And so we see this tragedy in Jesus' tears as he cries over an unrepentant and unbelieving Jerusalem. But we also see it in the temple. And this thing about the temple. Um, Luke also is very scant on details here and what Jesus does in the temple. Other gospels give us more details. Uh, but just a clue there. Verse 45 says he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. That Greek word there, drive out, is the same word that's used when, we're, when we read that Jesus drove out demons from people. Okay? So this was not a peaceful exercise. Weirdly enough, this king who's bringing peace goes about some rather unsettling business in the court of the temple. And you've got to understand about the temple. The temple was the crown of Jerusalem, okay? uh, which itself, the city itself, crowned a hill. And it was the heart of the faith of Israel. So the temple was the center and symbol of the whole Jewish religion. Okay? That's why during Passover week, people from all over the world at this point are coming back to Jerusalem to worship for this one week. Right, And Jesus busts up in it. As soon as he gets into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, he busts up in it and he starts throwing people out and throwing things around. Uh, And the Gospels give us other details of that. The temple was the heart of the Jewish religion because it was the physical place on this physical earth where God's presence physically dwelt. His glory physically dwelt there, but it actually hadn't dwelt there for some 400 years at this, this point. It's another story, but that's what it was in the mind and heart of the Jewish people. And that's what we read about it in Isaiah 56, that my house will be a house. This is what Jesus uh, uh, quotes. My house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples. Okay, so there was always Israel was the set apart nation, but there was always this intention of God that through Israel, through that people, the entire world would be able to know God. And actually, the outer courts of the temple were actually constructed for that very purpose that anyone, whether they were Jewish or not, could come into these outer courts and pray to God. 
But what Jesus finds when he gets there is that it's become kind of a marketplace. And they're just selling things and it's just kind of buy what you need and get out. And you're done. And so he starts turning things over. One of the gospels tells us that he makes a whip of cords and starts driving people out. Okay, And the thing about the temple is that it had long stood for the unshakable promises of God to dwell with his people. And Jesus is taking that seriously. And we get a hint of what he's doing in Jeremiah chapter 7. The prophet says, God through the prophet says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. Well, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And so what Jesus, what the prophet was, was, was talking about, what Jesus is reacting to, is that the temple had become a source of false assurance. And so all of this, Jesus' tears and then Jesus' action in the temple, this tells us two things that are rather unsettling that we deal with in the rest of the, of the week of Jesus, last week of Jesus' life. That Jesus actually is our problem, but he also deals with our problem. Think about this. Jesus is our problem, but he also deals with our problem. How is Jesus our problem? Well, the last week in death, uh, the last week of Jesus and his death, it's often referred to as his passion. Uh, his passion week is, uh, and his death referred to as his passion. Uh, it comes from the Latin word for suffering. So passion week refers to Jesus' suffering that he endured on the way to the cross and his passion was his death by crucifixion. But we also use that word, right, for ardent affection, right? Um, our, or intense feeling or conviction. And so, in a sense, the last week of Jesus' life could also be referred to as that, as we see his ardent affection for his people, because he gives his life, right? So there's kind of a, maybe a double entendre there. But here, here's the problem with Jesus. This is why Jesus is our problem. Jesus is our problem because Jesus was a man... Of perfect passion. That's a problem for us. Jesus was a man of perfect and holy and sinless passion. And that's what drove him to do the things that he does here in the last week of his life. He's a man of perfect passion, meaning he's not weepy or sentimental, right? But he weeps. He weeps over the things that break his heart. When he comes to the door of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, we get everybody's favorite Bible verse, right? Jesus wept. When he encounters people who are lost, we see Jesus having compassion, being moved in sadness toward them. And so the question about this man of perfect passion is, what does your heart break for? Does your heart break for the things that you didn't get that you wanted? Or does your heart break for the things that broke Jesus' heart? I'm going to steal from my predecessor something that I heard he said last night um, at RUF. You know, when you get to heaven, I can guarantee you, Jesus is not going to ask you whether or not you stood for the national anthem. But he will ask you if you stood for the oppressed. And for the victimized. Right? What does your heart break for? 
He's a man of perfect passion. He's not moody or, not, or bad-tempered, but he was outright angry at multiple points in his ministry over hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And he didn't hold back when he spoke against those things. Imagine a preacher. I mean, maybe, maybe you can go on YouTube and find something like this. Imagine a preacher who's preaching to you something rather serious and just starts throwing pews around the sanctuary. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what it looks like. But he did it without sin. He's a man of perfect passion. And that begs the question, what are we going to do with this king? Because this king was one of infinite majesty, yet complete humility. He was of perfect justice, yet boundless grace. He was one with absolute sovereignty, yet one who lived in utter submission. He was one that was all-sufficient in and of himself, yet he was entirely trusting and dependent on God. He's a man of perfect passion. And the result of his extreme character, see, we think of a person like that with that kind of character, and we think that leads to an emotional breakdown. But in Jesus, we actually see a perfect human being, a man of perfect Passion. What do you do with the one that because you sinned against him, you deserve death? Yet because he loves you, he endured that death on your behalf. What do you do with that? Well, you only have two options, and I borrow this from Tim Keller. You can either crown him or you can kill him. But the one thing that you cannot be is indifferent. You can't. You either accept him and you bow the knee. Or you reject him and you curse him. The one thing you cannot be is, mm, I don't know, not with this king. Jesus is our problem. The final thing here and what looms for us and the hope that, that shines for us here, even in the midst of the shadow that looms over it, is that Jesus also deals with our problem. And this is why the temple is so significant. significant because the story of the temple goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the original temple. It was paradise on earth. It was paradise on earth because God dwelt there and His people, Adam and Eve, dwelt there also in union and communion with Him. Right? But that paradise was lost and man was cast out from that sanctuary. And now, barring the way back in, was a flaming sword. Meaning that the way back into the presence of God was barred. And the only way through was through a sword. And so the question from that moment on into the rest of the Bible, the question that hangs over the rest of the Old Testament is how will we get back into the presence of God? And throughout the Old Testament, there was the law. There was the sacrificial system, there were the priests, there were the prophets, and there were kings. But what the stories continually show us is that all of them were glaringly incomplete. The way to God was still barred, but actually the answer was there all along. Listen to Isaiah 53, how the prophet puts it like this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. What is that telling us? It's telling us that the death of Jesus, the greatest tragedy that the world has ever seen, is actually the greatest royal triumph in the history of creation. Why? Because Jesus 
went under the sword and it broke him. But the beautiful part of the picture is that it broke itself too. That Jesus took the sword for you and me. That's why at the moment Jesus died, all of the gospels make the point to tell us that at that moment, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Why? Because the way back into the presence of God is now open. The sword wasn't nullified. It was satisfied. And it was satisfied by Jesus The flaming sword claimed its victim. The veil was parted and the way back into the garden was permanently reopened for all who would come. The question is, yeah, this is a triumphal entry. But it's also filled with tragedy. But it's also filled with hope. What are we going to do with this king? This is probably the most worn out RUF campus minister quote. Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. The Pevensey children keep hearing about this Aslan, right? And he's the king and he's all these things. But then they find out that he's a lion and that they're going to have to be in his presence. And they don't really know what to do about a lion. And so Susan asks, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, felt, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus was the king. And if that's true, it's a problem. But if he really is the king that he said he was, it's also the solution. I've said it every week. That's a great story. But what if it were true? Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We pray that you would give us hearts to believe and knees that could bend to you, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. Father, we need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.